1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Nina, and Nina was enmeshed with her status-driven narcissistic mother. It's a story of kidnapping, conditional love, sexual abuse, physical abuse, sibling roles, trauma, guilt, shame, and healing. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Nina. How are you?
0: I'm very well, Brandon. How are you today?
1: I am doing well. And today we're going to hear your story. It is a family story. And before we get To Nina's story, I just want to say that I am Brandon Chadwick. I forgot to say that at the beginning there. And if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Read all the instructions and send us an email at at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com. Or uh, please just fill out our form and press the Submit button. And today you're going to hear uh, Nina's story. It's not an easy story to tell. It's a family story and a trigger warning for everyone. There's sexual abuse mentioned in in this episode and physical bu- abuse as well. It's a little bit graphic here and there. Uh, so, and, and it's a little bit throughout, so please uh if this isn't for you don't listen to uh, this episode and i really just want to thank nina uh for being here for telling uh her story for coming on to tell her story and um you know this is it's, it's a heartbreaking story this one so i really want everyone to kind of get prepared uh for for this story it's uh not an easy story uh, to hear it's it's a you know the psychological abuse as well in in this story is uh heartbreaking. It really is, so a big thank you to uh Nina and now, without further ado, Nina, the floor is now yours
0: Thank you so much, Brandon. um It took a lot of thought to even even do this and and trying to figure out what I'm trying to convey. To everyone. And I think that the number one thing is that I'm surviving rather than someone who has classified myself as a survivor. It's an ongoing work in progress when it's a family member in particular um, or, or anyone. But with family, there's a longevity there. It, it's, it can be really hard to emotionally uh, leave your, your family. And I'm vulnerable to setbacks and memories and just renewed contact from my mother. So essentially, this story is about my relationship with my mother, who, um, you know, growing up, I mean, she was this beautiful, sensitive, intelligent woman. She had great insight. She was brilliant. She was admired. And that's how I saw her as well. And um, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to recognize that some of the things that my sister and I were surviving were not normal, were not okay. And um, I guess the story starts in Europe, where I was born. And my mom and my father were 17 years uh, apart in age. So my mother was quite a lot younger than my father when they got married. And um, she had my sister and then she had me. And she was desperately, desperately in love with, with my father. She, you know, I, Now I can look back and see that she really needed some narcissistic supply from him that she wasn't getting. He wasn't treating her the way she wanted to be treated by others and how admired she was. And so when I was three, she embarked on an affair with a coworker of his, and uh, she thought that that would really upset my father and that she would get some element of satisfaction out of seeing how jealous he was and how much he would fight to get her back. But he was a lot more mature than her and just kind of said, like, you messed up. You're so much younger than me. We can move past this. Now, for a woman that has some narcissistic personality traits, some borderline personality traits, that was her worst case scenario. He wasn't screaming that he was going to try and kill the other guy. He wasn't saying, I can't live without you. Um, I, I can't stand the thought of you being with someone else. So she really upped the ante and she said, okay, I'm just, I'm going to leave you then. If you don't want me, I'm going to leave you. And he said, well, you can't leave me. We have these kids. We have to do it properly to um, I remember the day my mom kidnapped my sister and me. We, uh, my, my father was in the backyard, actually sunning himself and, um, we said goodbye. She said she was taking us to the park and I never saw him again until I was 18 years old. And from my house, we drove across the country at that time to um, what would be my stepfather's house. And then two weeks later, we moved to Canada.
1: And how old were you here?
0: I was four and I have not a lot of memories of I, you know, I, I used to ask my mother, like, would I ask for my father? Would I ask where he was? And she would very vaguely say, "Yes, you would ask, but we would just explain that he didn't want you, or that he wasn't making an effort to see you." And you know, you understood that. I would say my sister was almost six. She suffered quite a lot more. She had quite a a, a, a more featured relationship with my father. Um, lots of different features. Lots of different time spent together that I don't particularly remember it for. So she really suffered and all of a sudden we had this new father figure and he, he thought my, my mom was just the most amazing woman. He really sort of bought into the narcissism. He gave her praise all the time. He was uh, taking portraits of her all the time. He was a really good photographer. Um, and just basically, you know, we weren't, no one was allowed to have a negative thought about her and, um, I never saw my mom very much growing up when we were quite young. She spent a lot of time doing what would be called self-care, sitting in front of the mirror, putting makeup on, uh, dressing her hair, buying clothing. She she really didn't like having small children, and um, he really kept us away from her. My stepfather did, because she was so irked by children, and so was he. So from a very young age, my, my sister and I were not allowed to be children. We had to be perfect in terms of behavior, vocabulary, um, the way we sat in public. Uh, we weren't allowed to ask for things ever that included food. Um, uh, we, we lived a very controlled life. We weren't allowed to get up in the middle of the night if we were scared and go see our parents. We had to stay in bed or we would be in terrible trouble. Um, we, we, our behavior had to be impeccable. And so I learned it from a very young age, I need to be perfect in order to get love. And I saw from my sister that, you know, my sister wasn't as able to to alter her behavior to be loved. So I saw what it looked like to be unloved, and it was terrible. So I, I learned from a young age, love is very conditional. If you are uh, perfect and sweet and pleasing and kind and nurturing, you will get love. And that's what I thought, that's who I thought I was. I just thought I was someone that that needed to help my mother in particular. So the ways when I was even just five that I was helping my mom was um, I would put my hand on her stomach when she was sick and she would tell me, oh, you make me feel so much better. Or I would put my hand on her forehead when she had a migraine and she would tell me that I was still healing and that my goodness and my sweetness helped her so much. So I kind of grew up thinking that this is what I have to offer. This is all I have to offer. And I learned from a young age to swallow my own feelings. And then things started happening in the family. My, my stepfather started getting quite physically violent with us. And the first time he physically beat me was just absolutely terrible. I had said something to my mother that had upset her. Um, she told him about it and he beat me. And I remember her being in the room at the time and crying. And then he left and my mother was crying. So I went and comforted her. And that is a really defining moment in my life because through comforting her, I was able to deal with my own pain better. It stopped hurting so much because now my priority was making my mother feel better. And I was apologizing to her. And I was, you know, telling her that I was sorry that she was crying or that I had said what I'd said to her. I don't even remember what I said. And um, I was still in a lot of physical pain, but I noticed in my body in that moment at five years old, wow, when I take care of others. The pain that I'm experiencing doesn't hurt as bad. Um, So obviously really sad that a a five-year-old would have to cope that way. Um, And then, of course, I started school. And an interesting facet about my mom is that she has really disordered eating. And so my teacher and I always went hungry at school. We were never supplied food to bring to school. um, And I still struggle with disordered eating as a result. My family is very weight-conscious. Um, And I think it it was an unspoken rule that like eating three meals a day, even two, it was just kind of ridiculous. And there was no way that they were going to spend money for us to eat snacks or that that was just not a part of it. Uh, But it was obvious. It would be obvious to me now if I if I saw a child like me growing up that there was something wrong. I was biting my nails to to the point of bleeding. My stomach was I was sick all the time. I was physically sick all of the time. And I had a really bad fear, like, uh, startle response. There there were definitely things happening. Uh, One of them was that uh, there were very few boundaries in terms of the way my stepfather was allowed to interact with me. So he would put his hand down my underwear and, like, touch my bum. He would kiss me on the mouth. And my mom, she acted as if she didn't think it was a problem. And so I, I wasn't allowed to have consent in any situation. I I was just there, you know, for him to basically take advantage of. And as a result, you know, growing up, I didn't know what consent was. So I would just kind of go into freeze mode. There's obviously fight and flight, and then there's just freezing. And I, I didn't know how to deal with this invasion. And it was definitely more targeted towards me than my sister. Um, and I again, I was the more pleasing, more docile child. Um, so that, that led to all kinds of problems in the future. My mom was not very affectionate. She didn't want to, she didn't show much affection. And then I had this man who's not my father, who's touching inappropriately. Um, and he was definitely the, the disciplinarian at that time. And she didn't seem to have any problems with that either, apart from that one time that she cried when I comforted her. And um, this whole time, I wasn't aware of it as a child, but my father was trying to locate us and have custody of us. And my, my mother and my stepfather were doing everything they could to alienate that, uh, make sure that that wasn't happening, um, really painting my father as an abuser. Child custody um, across borders is a lot harder than, um, you know, it, having a divorce in, in one country where there aren't three judges involved. Um, so there was the, the courts um, in my father's country of origin, the courts in my mother's country of origin, which was in Europe, and then in this new country, Canada, that we were living in. So it was very hard for my father to locate us and have access to us. And I was told I would never see my father again by, by my mother and my, my stepfather. Families have a lot going on.
1: So as far as things are at this point of your life, you are how old right here? Six years old? Sure, yeah. Six years old? Your mom is vanity-based. Everything is from this exterior facade where she gets all of her... um, supply being admired all of those things your stepdad falls in line she overlooks abuse if you are able to uh, provide these things for her and this sets up uh, his behavior that he's able to get away with it is as long as he's being a good soldier in her army. That uh, these things can happen. I, I assume that if he stopped doing that, then there would be trouble for him if he found the if she found these things out or or saw them. And for you, you fall in line. Your sister isn't falling in line. So are you? Are you the at this point? becoming this golden child and is your sister becoming a scapegoat and is there uh, animosity between you two at a very young age or do you even comprehend that both of you at that point?
0: That is such a good question. Uh, yes, I was by all accounts the golden child. I knew from a very young age that was the case. I don't know where I how I understood these concepts. I knew my sister was the scapegoat I knew that I had to remain the golden child. That was my method of survival. I have a lot of guilt about that um, because part of being the golden child was also, you know, not treating my sister well because that wasn't modeled. Uh, My, I came from a family where, you know, my sister had a stutter as a child and my parents made fun of her. And so did I. And, um, you know, I, I felt superior to my older sister because I was able to reel in my behavior and uh, get more positive affirmations than she could. And I knew that a lot of the love I was getting depended on her not getting love. And the scars of that, I mean, we'll talk about that later for sure, but that continues. With regard to what you said about my stepfather kind of falling in line and being, being a soldier, yeah, he had to be everything to my mom. Um, I, I think that he has a lot of narcissistic tendencies as well. He was elated to have such a beautiful wife who attracted so much attention, um, who, who was also giving him that reputation as, as looking like a guy who had a lot of success. All of a sudden he had these gorgeous kids. We really were, um, this beautiful, you know, foreign wife who was just so correct and beautiful. And, um, yeah, he, he was enamored of her. And she had always wanted a love like that. It's just that she didn't want it from him. Um, we'll see as the story progresses. She wanted that from my actual father. So that, that made things challenging. Um, but yes, I, I was aware at a very young age that I needed to remain the favorite. Um, that was going to be my method of survival.
1: And just a reminder for everyone who's listening who was in the same position as you growing up, there's no shame in what was going on if you were the golden child. And you're an observer, especially you being the youngest, and you're observing how the whole entire system works within the family and your thought process is that's being done wrong that's being done wrong they act that way this is my path to uh, of least resistance i'm gonna stick with that path you don't understand why you're doing it you just do it and even though like you're six you're just you're just figuring it out unconsciously you kind of understand why you're doing it but when you're that young you really don't grasp the full aspect of um what's going on and it's and you know as you get older uh you do and then there's a certain type of golden children who realize oh my god like that was not right and they try to make amends um and try to be a better person and you're one of those people. And for those that are listening um, who are, who are in the situation as well, you're not terrible. You're here, you're listening to this and um, you're here to improve your life and, and fix what's happened as well. I went off on a tangent. I apologize.
0: No, no. Uh, really good point. I think it's normal to feel shame. I I just think that it's it's important to unpack that and recognize that we all do the best that we can as children to survive. Um, and I have, uh, we've had, my sister and I've had many conversations, one in particular that I'll share later, where we finally had the guts to talk about our childhood and, and what happened and how sorry I was that um, I, I wasn't a, a better sister to her. And she understands why I couldn't be. And, and like, to understand all is to forgive all at the end of the day. So by now I'm about six. We've moved. Uh, we moved a lot. I went to 12 schools in 12 years. It was a, it was a lot of movement in my life. But we moved uh, from the first location that we lived in, Canada. And one day we were on a walk. We were walking our dog. It was myself, my my sister and my my stepfather, and he let us know it wasn't a discussion from now on, you are going to call me Dad. you're not going to call me by my first name anymore. this is what it is now and um, again, I'm a bit of a survivor. I know how to pivot and adapt, so I just started calling him Dad right away. My sister it was again, it was harder for her. she had had a, a stronger relationship with my actual father, and um, she was punished for not calling him dad dad uh calling my stepfather dad um by uh so he would give me candy and if she called him dad i was allowed to give her a candy so like look how manipulative that is um to to basically put me in charge of my sister's behavior um that's that's a terrible thing to do to a six-year-old it's a terrible thing to do to a seven-year-old um and that's just one example of many of, of how they set us against each other as siblings so later that year, or maybe a couple months later even, who knows, they, they got married. And um, then we, we did a big pivot, and we moved, to, uh, we moved overseas as a family. And uh, things were always different when we lived overseas. Uh, we had more money. My mom had more, um, more leisure time, more time to take care of herself, more time to buy clothes, more money to buy clothes. So she was, she was living really well there for a while. Um, but an incident happened in the, in the Middle East, actually, where, um, because at this, all through this time, my, my stepfather is still inappropriately touching me. And one day, uh, we were at a jewelry store, actually, somewhere in the Middle East, and, and a man who I don't know if he was mentally ill or on drugs or both, but he approached me and he, he wanted to kiss me. And my mom was standing right there, and she didn't protect me. She didn't call me over to her, and I was in freeze mode. At this point, I was just used to being in freeze mode. And this stranger kissed me. And when it was done, I was, you know, when it was over, I was really traumatized. And my mother blamed me for not having gotten out of the way or or run to her. It was my fault. And um, I had a lot of shame about that for a long time. Like, why did I stand there and let this stranger kiss me? But obviously. Now I know why, um, and I, that that's a very distressing memory. And I, I really would encourage parents to save their children from moments like that, um, and and from moments within their homes like that. Um, the and the you know the touching did not decrease with age; it increased with age for quite a while. And also with him demanding that I touch him, so I, it was my job to to uh, rub his feet, for example, things like that, just things that most kids wouldn't wouldn't do if they were asked by by someone that was giving them a choice again this is not even my father so um at this time it's become apparent that I'm not a good student Um, I was a very intelligent child but I was so in my head at school all the time thinking about my mom missing my mom she was my primary relationship it was my job to take care of her if she had a migraine I had to put my hand on her Forehead. If she was sick, I had to sit with her in the bathroom. If she was really sick, I couldn't go to school because she needed me. Um, at a very young age, uh, I, I began uh, running the bathwater for her, making tea for her, making snacks for her. Um, so whenever my stepfather wasn't around, all of a sudden she replaced him with me. I was in a primary relationship. And um, so I had no sense of self. Um, I had... I was already set up to not understand myself and my responses. I wasn't allowed to acknowledge when I was cold or hot or hungry, um, but I had to be very in tune with how my mom felt. And a big part of my relationship with my mom was my mom hating my sister. So it was around this time, it, it started actually a little bit later when I was about 11, but this is when it started to be suggested to me that my sister was a problem in the family that we would be so much happier if she went away to boarding school, that, you know, why can't she be more like me? Um, And it was also a time where my mom maybe started recognizing. So there was this one particular incident that happened in the Middle East where I was standing in my mom's room looking at myself in her vanity mirror. And it really upset my mom. And she said that that was vanity and I shouldn't look at myself. And the childlike response was, but you look at yourself in the mirror all the time. She had no response to that. And that's just like a little narcissistic red flag that um, didn't have meaning then that does now. That my mom was not able to recognize that that's, as a child, that's all I saw her do was apply makeup, look at herself, admire herself, try on a bunch of different outfits, but that that was absolutely not behavior that I was allowed to engage in. And um, there was, there seemed to be a lot of concern about the fact that I wasn't doing as well in school as they thought that I could, but it was, um, they, they were so happy with my behavior at home that it wasn't as big of an issue as it may may have been for other parents. Uh, and whereas my sister was incredibly scholastically gifted, um, but that wasn't really, um, she didn't get as many accolades for that as, as she should have, as she could have deserved.
1: Does your mom actually have any friends?
0: No, my mom never trusted another woman. That's an amazing question. My mom, um, my mom doesn't believe that women should, should speak to other women uh, in confidence. Uh, and so she would actually tell me from a young age, uh, I have to talk to you because I can't trust other women. You're, I have, it's sad that you're my daughter and I have to tell you these things, but you can't trust other women. You can't talk about family business. That, that was a big, we had secrets and we kept them. And so she, she felt better about telling me than she would have a counselor or friends or even acquaintances. Yeah, there was a lot of secrecy within the family. And there was a way in which my family communicated in public versus in private. The, the affect was different. The tone of voice was different. We were acting. Um, I acted differently in public. My, my stepfather certainly acted differently differently. Um, and because my sister wasn't as malleable and, and didn't behave differently in public, that was a problem. And I just always thought like, why can't she get in line? Like, Why doesn't she recognize that if she just behaved like me, she would be in less trouble. But now I see that, you know, she, in, in some, we're both very strong. I don't want to put myself down, but that was her strength coming out. My strength was the adaptability, her strength was standing up to the forces. So um we, we have this amazing time in the Middle East. We come back to Canada and, and all of a sudden, you know, the status and the dinners and the, and the travel and it, it kind of dies down a little bit. And that's when when my parents were the most unhappy, I would say. And that's when the abuse was worse. So by the time we were about six and seven, um, my sister and I were always left alone. It didn't matter what country we were in. It didn't matter if we were in a, a house, an apartment a hotel, uh, they would just leave us with strict instructions to not answer the phone or answer the door, um, which, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm now in my my 40s, like, I, I just can't imagine leaving, I can't even leave my dogs alone for very long, it, it just so shocks me, but they wanted to go and have a good time, they wanted to go and have drinks, they wanted to have dinners, they were still very much in the sort of the honeymoon stage of their relationship, and my, you know, my mom loved being adored. And she didn't want us around for that. But when we came back to Canada, we were left alone for eight or 10 hours a day, sometimes. And we we didn't know how to structure our time. Uh, Whenever we were with our parents, our time was completely structured. We were told what to do the entire time. We never sat down, we never relaxed, we never watched television. We did chores, we did homework, we did more chores. We walked the dog. Um, so when we were alone, we didn't know what to do because no one was telling us what to do. And we didn't have that inner peace to, to be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to read or I'm going to. We, we didn't know what to do. Um, and we were constantly in trouble for what we had done when we were alone. And some of the things were really risky. Uh, one of the times my sister and I were actually beaten with belts is because we were so bored we were playing with candles. Um, you know, kids do things. I, I, I mean, I feel so embarrassed to even say that, that, you know, I was playing with matches as a child alone, but that's why you don't leave kids alone because kids do get so bored that they do things like that. And yeah, I I get that. I could have, you know, I could have burned up our whole house. We could have died, but that's why you don't leave kids alone. There was also almost never food in the house that we could eat. My mom ate very regimented meals. Um, There was never snack food in the house and we didn't know how to cook. So we were hungry all the time at school and at home. And my sister and I had coping mechanisms to deal with that. And unfortunately that had to do with stealing food and stealing money to buy food. And the guilt and the shame that we have carried about that for years, there's times I still feel guilt and shame about it, but we were literally starving and we didn't have the coping mechanisms. And also it wasn't a time in the world where people were teachers or social workers were saying, like, why don't you ever have a lunch? Like, it just wasn't noticed. And we were embarrassed. So we were hiding it, right? And I became a lunch monitor, or, you know, I started looking after younger kids during lunch hours so that people wouldn't notice that I wasn't eating. And that also, the other side of that is that I was already perceiving myself as a caregiver in every part of my life. So at home, I was my mother's caregiver. And you know, I was I was bringing the sunshine for my stepfather because he just wanted a sweet, happy girl. And at school, by the age of seven or eight, I was already taking care of children with special needs. I was the kid on the school bus that had to sit with the crying kindergartner who missed mommy. So my entire identity was a caregiver. That's a, that's a lot to put on a child. Um, so we yeah we were left alone a lot. Um, it was it was really scary. We were in trouble all the time. Uh, the physical abuse continue just that it was terror so he didn't even have to hit us anymore my stepfather the the threat of him hitting us was so powerful that when he was mad at us we would literally freeze to one spot and shake we couldn't even move um to the point where if he would wake me up you know after i'd fallen asleep to scream at me and i would sit up in fear i would sit like that for hours after he had left because i couldn't move and, you know, I didn't know what that was at the time. Now I know that's a freeze response. It's a response to trauma. So we were, we were scared all the time of, of being hit. He would hit us in the face. He, would, um, he wouldn't punch us in the head, but he would use his knuckles to knock on our heads, which was incredibly painful for us. Um, he would. He, there was a time he threw me into furniture in the kitchen. Um, and, yeah, we were, we were scared all the time. And so this is a man who's physically abusing me. And is inappropriately touching me still. And my mother's aware of all of this. And to her, from her perspective, when her children are terrified, they're out of her hair. She's not having to parent them. The only interactions we really had were me taking care of her. So she was living the dream. And she didn't have to be a mom, which was never her interest. I mean, I to this day, I don't even know why she had children. Um, so... Yeah, it, it was a it was a terrifying experience. And then as we're you know we're getting a little bit older, um, things shift even more. When I turn eleven, so I turned eleven, and my stepfather went away for a year, and we were so excited, my sister and I. We were just like, oh my goodness, this is going to change everything. We're finally going to have our mother, uh, because we really loved our mom, like we really did. And things shifted the minute he left. The minute my stepfather was overseas, my mom replaced. Him with me in a second. The day he left, I had to sleep in her bed with her. She couldn't sleep alone. I, as an 11-year-old child, had to teach my mom how to fill out a check, use a cash machine. She couldn't grocery shop without me. She couldn't walk the dog without me. Nothing. And that's when the campaign of hatred against my sister really came to fruition. So I was 11 years old, and I would go on walks with my mom with our dog. And she would tell me how much she hated my sister and how she wished my sister would just go away so that we could be alone and be happy. And I knew, I mean, I knew that wasn't normal, but also I was so grateful that I wasn't the one that she hated. Um, and, you know, my, I was irked by my sister's behavior, too, because I had been told my whole life, like, your sister's strange, your sister's weird, you know, she makes everything worse, that she was the ultimate scapegoat. And I was so grateful that she, that my mom didn't feel that way about me. And uh, Tuesdays, my sister had a commitment where she would, and my sister was only 12 years old. God bless her. And she had a commitment on Tuesday nights. And all week, my mom would say, on Tuesday, we can be alone, Nina. We can be alone. And it'll be so nice. And, you know, and, and she, I started to realize that she, I was very young. I had no life experience. But I started to realize she didn't love my stepfather. She relied on my stepfather. There wasn't love there. There was she needed him for income. She needed him for a narcissistic supply. Um, but she would have been happy if the money had kept coming in, and it could have just been her and and me. And you know that that's a lot to put on an eleven-year-old. And one one morning, this is this really stands out to me. My mom had a she had a really bad migraine, and she told me, "You can't go to school today, Nina, because I might die, and I I don't want to die alone." So. You know, a normal mom might call a friend, but she had none. Um, she might call nine one one, but she didn't. So I'm in my house with this woman who has this terrible migraine, my mom, and I'm scared she's gonna die. So I mean, I don't think it's a huge foreshadow here that moving forward I have terrible anxiety problems, terrible depression problems as I enter adolescence. Um I that that's just such a terrible thing to do to an 11 year old and I you know and I'm making her tea and I'm running her baths and I'm praying for her and I don't like why can't I help her I'm supposed to be her healer um so that year I mean I did get a lot more of my mom than I ever had we actively spent time together that my stepfather wasn't a part of but I became an adult at 11 with regard to like now I basically had a child that I was raising and she was my mother
1: so you were enmeshed before, but this cements your enmeshment with your mom. When your mom tells you these things about how she feels about your sister, do you ever have a, a conversation with your sister at a young age about what your mom said? Or, or do you say to yourself, that's too mean to even say to my sister if we're not getting along. Um, is there a part of you that wants to protect your sister from, from all of it? And I guess, um, you know, as far as how you view your sister at, from this point specifically on um, how is it, I guess, facing her, knowing that, uh, information.
0: Right. So I never told my sister that that's what my mom was saying, because honestly it was so obvious. Like everyone knew I was, I was the favorite child. I was providing my son, my mother with something that my sister couldn't. My sister wasn't the empathetic one. My mom didn't love me for who I was. She loved me for what I was providing her. And I I never specifically said it to my sister a year prior to my stepfather going away. We went on a walk, my sister, my stepfather and myself. Walks were always a very dangerous time in our in the childhood. If you went on a walk, something terrible was going to happen. And my stepfather told my sister, your mother doesn't love you and you like you better figure it out because your mother doesn't love you. It's because of your behavior. It's because of who you are. There is something wrong with you. And as a child, of course, I thought, what's wrong with her? Like, why doesn't, why doesn't my mother love her? Like, why can't my sister just be a better kid? And, you know, I was so brainwashed. And again, the, it, just because I was brainwashed doesn't mean I don't have guilt. I'm sitting here in so much guilt right now, even thinking about it, because my sister was just this vulnerable, beautiful child who needed all the love and got like none And it's, and it's actually, it's worse than, than, I mean, at least there were things about me that I was getting love about. I mean, it was super conditional, but, but still, but no, I didn't, but I was very irked by my sister. I agreed with my mom. I never said it, but I, I kind of thought, yeah, if, if my sister wasn't there, maybe things would be easier. My mom would be happier. My number one goal was for my mother to be happy. So if that meant that my sister went to boarding school or something, maybe that's the solution. My, my sister wasn't providing the narcissistic supply that my mom wanted, so she was useless to her and a nuisance to her. So now the year is coming to a close. I've never been closer to my mother. We have such a bond. I haven't slept in my own bed for an entire year. Um, my mom is dressing me up like her. She's. I remember she once put all this... Um, like it was like a Chanel uh, fake tanning thing on me. Cause she wanted to see what I would look like with, with a tan. She would take pictures of me in her jewelry. Like all of a sudden I'm sort of becoming um, my mom's puppet. Um, and she's finding all these commonalities between us. Like I'm good at yoga. You're going to be good at yoga. I look good in gold. You're going to look good in gold. This is my favorite color. It can be your favorite color. Um, So all of a sudden, she's wanting me to grow up a little bit faster than I was, um, you know, wanting me to have a perfume or, you know, and I'm I'm still very, very young. So then my stepfather comes home and he recognizes immediately that my mom doesn't really need him. Um, She really likes the status he provides her. She likes the money. But the supply that I was giving her was somehow preferable to her. Um, She really missed that alone time that we had together. So now all of a sudden, I'm a threat to their relationship. And um, so now I'm still the favorite child of my stepfather, but I am not the golden child anymore. Now I'm a problem. Now I'm too close to my mother. Like, you know, it, it was just, it was really obvious that things had changed. And all of a sudden, he's been gone a year. He was never my father in the first place. And now I can barely stand it. And um, so I try to get away from kissing him goodnight. I try to avoid him physically. And that is getting me into a lot of trouble. So I'm about 12 now. I'm, you know, I'm becoming a young woman. I've, I've gotten my period. So I'm starting to avoid him by like going to bed without saying goodnight to anybody and saying that I felt things like that. And I would be really disciplined for that. Um, I would be told that I was a terrible person. What if one of us died in the middle of the night and we hadn't said goodbye? There is nothing wrong with the way he touches me and wants to kiss me. That is my problem. Um, You know what's wrong with you? You used to be such a sweet little girl. Um, And so, unfortunately, and you know, I want to tell you that I've healed in so many ways, and I have. But that particular trauma will might never be healed in me i've been married for uh 15 years with my husband 18 years and i we can barely kiss i can barely kiss or be kissed on the mouth um what i found when i started having romantic relationships is i can kiss people at the beginning um but as soon as it's a given for them and they're sort of coming in for kisses and it's assumed that it's okay i turn my face away I clam up Um, and that makes me really sad like I didn't anticipate a life where kissing would be abhorrent to me where you know my husband can't kiss his wife I don't think that's what he thought his future was going to look like but that is the effect of being having no consent and being forced to have um have you know close exposure and and lack of boundaries with someone that I did not want to be close with. And my mother was very pro. Like, no, I don't agree with adolescence. I don't agree with you, quote unquote, growing up. This is this. He's done everything for you. If he wants you to kiss him, if he wants to touch you, that's fine. That was really the message. Some of it was spoken, some of it was unspoken. But all of a sudden, I was um, not as sweet and as as good and as golden as I was um, prior to to having some concerns about this inappropriateness. So, then very quickly after that year, it was announced that my sister and I were going to boarding school. Now, that was a hard one because I loved my mom so much and I didn't want to be away from her. And my mom, she didn't want to be away from me either. But the status that this move for them was going to give them and the money it was going to afford them and all of the things, it was worth it to her too. Uh, So, we went away to boarding school. And that, this is the beginning of. of of a new story which is how I started to realize that things were really not normal in my in my family so uh we my sister and I um at this age were I'm I just turned 14 my sister had just turned 15 and um we had lived a very sheltered life so we had always been sent to Catholic schools although neither of my parents are Catholic they wanted us to, they They were very honest they they thought the discipline in Catholic schools was better. They thought we would you know be better girls. They were really concerned about our like i don 't want to say virginity but our our uh, purity they didn 't want us looking at boys, interacting with boys they didn 't want us behaving like teenagers they didn't want us to have friends. We never went to people 's houses as friends. We never had friends come over to our house ever, no matter where we lived or what we did. Um, we weren 't allowed to take part in dances at school we weren 't allowed to There was actually a dancing segment in my physical education class, and they wrote a note saying that i wasn 't going to participate they didn 't want me anywhere near boys um, so i was I was very sheltered and uh, they sent us to an all girls school uh, to continue that sheltering, but they didn 't realize that all the other parents that were sending their kids to the school weren 't doing it in an effort to save their their daughters from ever meeting a boy. It was just you know, um, maybe a more secure environment for learning. Um, so I I get to boarding school um, right away. I don't know what my role is because I I'm not taking care of anybody. That was that was really unusual. So all of a sudden I've got all of these professionals around me: teachers, house mothers, counselors, nurses. You know, that work for the school, and they're all kind of asking me who I am and what I'm good at and what my interests are and my interests are taking care of my mother. My interests are taking care of children who are less fortunate than me. And they're like, no, no, no. Like outside of that, like, who are you? What do you want to do? And the only thing I could really point to was that I'm a caregiver. I'm a healer. I'm a helper. And they, I could just tell that they were very uncomfortable with that. And they started asking questions about my home life. And I was very defensive um, and then I, I met a girl and within the first couple of days and she was really candid and open with me that she was at this school because she was kicked out of the public system for bad behavior. And I just thought, oh my goodness, my parents would have killed me if I'd been bad in school. Like, I can't even imagine a principal calling my parents. And she said, you know, I've really made things so hard for my mom, but my mom loves me so much. And I thought like, why would her mother love her so much? Like, she's a bad kid. And she showed me this letter that her mom had put in in between pages of a book that she was reading. So her mom knew that she would read this book and find it. And it was, she showed it to me. And it was basically like, I love you so much. You're my pride. You're my joy. There's not a day that's going to go by where I don't miss you. I just want you to really take advantage of this school experience and be the best version of yourself that you can be. And mommy loves you. And I, like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that people loved their kids. And this started to be like, it's all the girls around me, their parents loved them to a degree. And, um, we had never said, I love you in my, in my home ever. My mom actually used to make fun of families who, who ended phone calls with, I love you, sweetie. Or like we, we would make fun of them. My mom would make fun of them. I would do it back. I didn't know that people really did love their kids. And, uh, so now all of a sudden I'm surrounded by all of these people who are loved, who have somewhat secure attachment styles to their parents, who know that even if they mess up, their parents will still love them. And that really, that was very confusing for me and caused a lot of alarm. And um, so I started being a little bit honest, not a lot, but a little bit. I started confiding in some friends, and I'd never really been allowed to have friends, but when you're in a boarding school, they're everywhere. You live with them, you go to school with them. So I started kind of saying some things about how I'd been raised or how scared I was of my stepfather or how my mom, you know, didn't pay attention to me unless I was doing something for her. And I, I got some empathy for that. And I, I got people going, that sucks. That's not how it should be. But then I had my sister coming at me going like, how dare you talk about our family like this? How dare you put us under a microscope?" Or reveal the things that are happening like our parents are better than all of these parents and how could you do this to us and she was I mean obviously she was much more oppressed and abused than I was um she was I I mean you'd think that I would be more motivated to keep the secrets but it was actually my sister and there was a an incident that happened where we we had just gotten off of like a a 20-hour flight we had layovers and we were very very tired and we got into this car with a house mother from our boarding school. She was picking us up from the airport and we had just spent a couple of weeks with our parents. And my sister had really, you know, I I guess she was feeling very defensive of them. And I said something in the car, I don't know what. And my sister said to this house mother, my sister's a liar. She lies about everything. You know, she lies about our parents. None of that is true. Our parents are great. And the house mother, I was so embarrassed and I, I just thought maybe I am a liar. And I'll never forget the house mother. She was like, okay, girls, like, let's just take a breath. We're so tired from this journey. And I'm crying and my sister's crying. And I realized, like, my sister was afraid of what I was going to reveal about the visit that we just had. And so she just off the bat, as soon as we got in the vehicle with this, this woman just wanted her to know that Nina's a liar. Um, And um, there was still a lot of guarding that was happening um of of the family secrets and the visits were the the family dynamic was really shifting so when we went to um the, you know the far east to visit the parents um my my mom was really happy that I was there because she wanted me to know what a terrible husband my stepfather was being to her all of a sudden she had no loyalty to him all of a sudden he was the problem not my sister so she the scapegoat he, everything was now his fault Um, and he wasn't giving her the attention that she desired anymore. He was embarrassing her in public. He didn't have as much status as he should have. Um, And she was kind of, in those moments, she would admit, I guess, for her own gain, that he was abusive towards my sister. And then one day, my sister and I got a little bit comfortable, and we kind of said, like, she was complaining about my stepfather. My my mom was, and we kind of said, "Yeah, like he's done this and this and this to us." And my mom blew into a rage, uh, said that we had uh, false memory syndrome. That was that was uh, a claim that we would hear for years after that. That we made up so much of the abuse. We made up the inappropriate touching. We made up being locked out of our house. Our parents used to lock us out of our house for hours and hours at a time when we were children. Uh, We were told that we were lying about never having food, that we were expected to do so much around the house. Basically, we were insane. And um, that really mended a fight that she had with my stepfather because she could go back to him and split against us and say, like, you won't believe what the girls are saying. About, Um, And that's when I became aware of the triangulation at that age.
1: So how old are you at this point? Fifteen. So you are fifteen here, and your sister's uh around sixteen years old here and I just wanna say like how bad both of you have it, and that this is this the gaslighting here is is insidious uh in my opinion, it re- it really is. Uh, and I guess, are you believing what is said?
0: So if I hadn't had my sister there, maybe I would have thought that I was crazy. Sure. Um, when you're the to me, like, is it gaslighting? You know, I, it was, she was basic. My mother was basically telling us, that, well, everything that we were remembering wasn't true, that we were um, making it up, that we were sick, you know, what has boarding school done to you? Um, and again, they were so disgusted by adolescence as well, just any kind of feeling from teenagers, like, believe it or not, a little bit off topic, but when I was 14, they sat us down and made us watch a Beatles concert. And you know how back in the day, all the girls would scream and, you know, they were so excited for the Beatles and they, they would point to them and say, this is mass hysteria. This is disgusting. Don't you ever behave like this. You will be so ashamed of yourself for the rest of your life. If you behave like this as a teenager, you be an adult, you don't behave that way. So there was that, that element of it, like just behave perfectly and now we're being told, well, no, you you also need to remember things differently. None of that happened because I, I guess my mom thought, wow, if they are comfortable sharing with me what's happened and they're being honest, who else are they going to tell? And she knew that I was surrounded in this school. I was a very, very amazing school. I was surrounded by health professionals, teachers, counselors, house mothers that had social work degrees, you know, masters in psychology. I think the fear came in, so what do you do? You tell your daughter that she's a hysterical teenager and that um, none of this is real. And by the way, you're super ungrateful, both of you. She, that's when, use the language, they, the term ungrateful bitches started. And that is, to this day, we are referred to as the ungrateful bitches. My, my sister and me. And that, again, hurt, very hurtful. But yes, I think if my sister hadn't uh, been witness to what... Uh, like that we were each other 's witnesses about what we survived, and we were there that day in that tea room in the in the Middle East, saying to our mom you 're really mad at our stepfather, and so are we because of what he 's done to us and it actually ended up strengthening her relationship with him because she 's so mad at us um, yeah,
1: so I guess before we continue um, were there things that you wanted to do as a child that you were told you were bad at or you were just don't even try and all these things that you wanted to experiment with like what would be like the number one or two because you know your teachers and the counselors there at the school wanted to know these things about you and you didn't even have any answers for them but were there things like a deep town that you did want, you just were too scared to even voice those things?
0: Absolutely. So, um, the first is dancing. I would say that's, that's like the biggest, that's one of the saddest things in my life is that I never learned to dance. Um, my, again, it was something to do with, with, um, chastity or, uh, purity, but, um, we were not allowed to use our bodies in that way. We weren't even allowed to take part in the dancing that was happening at school. Um, so I, I grew up really uncomfortable in my own body and like, just, I, I don't have that comfort that people have that, you know, we're allowed to use their bodies, their whole lives, you know, for, for movement and, and expression, shall we say. I was an incredibly, I mean, I, if I may say so myself, I was an incredibly gifted vocalist as a child. And that was, that was appreciated for a while, uh, quite a bit until I started singing music that they didn't like. And my mom's way of dealing with, she didn't like that I was a great singer. That was a big threat to her. Um, she also thought she was a really good singer. So if I would start to sing a song, my mom's way of dealing with that would be to sing a different song over me. So that was her way of letting me know, don't don't sing. Um, I was constantly told to not sing. Um, I did have, you know, other things that... The school fostered in me. I, you know, I was on the debating team. I was a really good tennis player. So I was allowed to have hobbies if my parents approved of them. But, um, and going back to dancing, there was this one time, I must have been eight or 10 or something. And I was just listening to the Supremes with my my stepfather. And at one point I just randomly danced. And I'll never forget his face. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, where did you learn that? And like shaming me. Uh, Maybe, like, he perceived it as sexual, but it wasn't. I was a child, as an innocent child, Um, and that I've been embarrassed about that aspect of myself ever
1: since. Listening to everything so far, and for the most part, everything that is traumatizing, um... Surrounds the body for you for the most part, so are you comfortable at all in your there's, in your in your body um, I know obviously there's still trauma around um, the sexual abuse, but and then there's the body image eating. How tough is it day-to-day at 15 and, and still today? I mean, at 15, that's a lot of trauma body-wise for a 15-year-old girl especially. And now you're 40 and there's still parts of that trauma that exist. How difficult is it for you to be in your own skin
0: that is honestly one of the most amazing questions I've ever been asked. So at 15 in particular, um, I, was, um, I was very developed. Like I've always been very busty. And I, I had a body that was approved of in my family to a, to a degree. I was very feminine, which is like what my stepfather liked. Again, pretty gross that I know that. But he he really liked my body. So I, I thought, okay, my body's fine. As long as I don't move it in any suggestive way, we're good. However. This is still when I'm on a starvation diet, right? So I go to boarding school with my sister and we're eating three meals a day. And people are asking us, like, have you had a snack today? And, you know, don't forget to go and eat dinner. And, like, they were, they, nutrition was a very big part of the caregiving that they were providing us. So my sister and I did gain weight. And when we landed at the airport and our parents picked us up for our first visit, my mom, like, was disgusted by us disgusted by the weight gain Um, and around that time also I started to develop some health issues around so now we know it was like I had cysts and on my ovaries and things like that but the way that manifested outwardly was I had really bad cystic acne and my mom told my sister actually my sister told me this later that she had told my sister I'm so I can't even hug your sister I'm so disgusted by her skin and her weight like I'm just disgusted by her Um, so, and we were in a country where you really didn't need prescriptions to get drugs. So my mom put me on antibiotics for five years, to clear my skin, for five years. When we returned to Canada as a family, I was on Accutane three times and no one ever bothered to check if there was an underlying hormonal issue that was causing this acne. It didn't matter. As long as it was gone, it doesn't matter. And as it happens, I was, I was in a lot of, um, pain and I did have cysts that burst in, in my uterus and things like that. And I never once thought care for that. Um, now in my body, I'll just go back to, I'll, I'll come up to now. I have, um, I have a partner who, who really like, who, who compliments me in a way that is normal and fine and is not, is not indicative of, of him giving me narcissistic supply. He, he praises my health and my form um, my eating habits, you know, he's, he's a cheerleader for me. Um, I, I guess I, I've, I'm conventionally attractive, I guess. And I have kind of thought, well, that's an, ex- that's an expectation. My mom was beautiful. I've got to do my best with what I've got. Um, I'm not saying there's competition with my mom. Uh, my mom was actually always very hurt when people suggested we looked alike uh, because she thinks she is so much better looking than me, obviously. But um, I, I definitely have to have a meticulous look. So I, it's not that I think I was born perfect or anything, but my, my, my hygiene has to be a hundred percent. If anyone hugs me, they have to tell me you smell terrific. So I'm, I'm really, I, I guess I'm, I'm really scared to to be less than the best that I can be with regard to my weight, how I smell, uh, my clothing. So very image-based, very image-driven, and I do know that that's a result of my childhood, and it's not a part of myself that I'm very comfortable with. I really admire women who are comfortable in their own skin, who can leave the house without putting makeup on, um, who don't have to plan outfits all the time. It's, it's, It's a side effect of being raised by my mom that I would really like to grow out of, and that's a work in progress.
1: So, I'm not done asking questions, and I hope you're okay with that. Um, Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for
0: select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: There are just so many mixed messages up until this point where your programming, no matter what, is going to be screwed up for until you decide to try and, uh, like reprogram. But sometimes there's reprogramming where the wires are twisted a little. Yours are really twisted. In my opinion, as far as everything that's kind of been done, because it's just from all, it's all from all angles here. Um, all different types of abuse. Um, so, I know I'm really jumping ahead of where you were on your linear timeline of the story, and I apologize about that, but I'm Canadian, so I'm going to apologize. <clears throat> but with, with all of the mixed messages that are going on, um, there has to be a certain point, because this is the same with computers, and it's the same with how programs are written. At a certain point, when you have bad coding, the program stops working. It just crashes, and it's done. And sometimes there's a software update, and that causes the so- like the program to crash. Sometimes these new things get added, and, and you know, over time, things uh, stop working. Yours has to crash. I mean, it's inevitable uh, before your husband, or maybe while you're with your husband, that with All of these different types of trauma, body trauma, uh, emotional trauma of complete mixed messages, when did you crash? Like, when did that happen? And like, what was the event that transpired that that happened? Or one day you woke up and you just broke. It wasn't working. You tried to turn on your computer. And it was the circle that kept on going and just wouldn't turn on.
0: It's a really hard question. I I feel like there have been a few times that the hardware is just no longer, like, it's just not a thing anymore. I would say the first time I fell in love um, and I realized that love, like, I don't know what what it was for other people, but it was the most painful, horrible, just the most awful experience. Like I, I, And that's what I thought love was. Um, so when I was in boarding school, I'm, you know, and it's an all girls school. And, and again, I didn't have a, a, an identity. I didn't have a sense of self. Um, I knew to freeze when things happened that I didn't like, I met a very precocious girl and she definitely wanted to have sexual knowledge of me. And my way of dealing with that at the time was just to freeze. And, um, I started to have a relationship with her. Like I kind of did with my mother. So I was doing a lot for this person. I was, you know, making her bed in the morning, taking her garbage out, walking her to classes, like doing all the caregiving. But then there was this sexual component, which I'm not saying I didn't ever enjoy, but I could never show that I enjoyed it because I was so screwed up about sexuality and not being able to be anything but pure. um, Knowing to freeze if something went too far, um, because that's what I was used to. And when that person, believe it or not, like as abusive as it as it sometimes was, when that person was no longer interested in me. I thought I was going to die. I had lost that connection. Like I had tried all the things I had tried with my mother, essentially with regard to taking care of that person. And they still didn't want me. And um, I would say that's when I became aware that I was mentally ill. Um, My thoughts were so dark. They were so negative. I was in physical pain from the rejection. Um, And that set me on a path of realizing, okay, there is something really wrong here. Um, and I I need to figure it out. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah. When did you start to go to therapy?
0: Uh, that year. So that year, the school recognized something's wrong with Nina. Something is wrong here, um, and they wrote to my parents and said your 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 daughter's exhi- exhibiting signs of depression, anxiety, um, performance anxiety that in class, all of the things. And they wrote back a scathing letter. My stepfather did basically saying, don't psychoanalyze my daughter. She's better behaved than all the other kids. And um, they. my daughter needs her mother. She doesn't need a counselor. She doesn't need anything. So the school actually sent me secretly to, um, to counseling. I, I didn't have to tell my parents. And uh, the counseling at the time was a lot of work that I wasn't ready for, which was like, you know, how does your body feel? Like how... W- you know, trying to teach me breathing, trying to teach me like, it's okay to be who you are. And I'm like, well, I don't know who that is. So what are you talking about? I was, I was really, um, I wasn't an easy client. I was young. I was very defensive of my family. I still believed, you know, in spite of the abuse, my mom and stepfather were like really awesome, intelligent, brilliant, beautiful people. I needed to continue to protect them. Uh, you know there's this fear always of like, what if I'm taken away from my parents if I'm honest like what's that gonna look like um so that the first therapy was it was a bit of a fail
1: at least the fact that with the school, somebody cared you know they they cared they 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 cared enough about you to. Uh, send you or recommend that you go and in a way that's arguably the first real love you might have experienced in that way
0: absolutely um there there were things that happened at the school that were really profound in terms of me understanding what actual love looks like and and what it might feel like uh the acceptance of who I am uh, versus the you know just the the wanting of what I could provide. So the first thing was uh, the first time I was ever sick and they were like, oh, are you not feeling well? And I was like, yeah, but it's fine. I'll suffer through it. It's I'll go to school. They're like, no, 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 no. Like this is the part of your life where you learn to check in with how you feel. And if I was this sick, Nina, I would stay home and you know, why don't you get into bed and we'll get the nurse. And I realized like, oh, how I feel matters. Okay. Then they got me an appointment with a doctor because my stomach was always in shreds and ribbons and you know, I was sick all the time. And they're like, okay, well, you have irritable bowel syndrome. And, you know, are you stressed? And I was like, no, I'm fine. And, you know, they had to really work to get me to talk about what I'm stressed about. And ultimately, what I was stressed about at the time was my mom. How is my mom doing without me? You know, she's with my stepfather. They're not having a good time. I miss her. Who's taking care of her? So, you know, I was like I was missing my child in, in, in other ways. I wasn't ready to focus on myself. And then some things happened when I was um, on vacation with my parents. Uh, one of them was that cyst that I had um, in on my ovary burst. And I didn't know about that until a couple of years later, but I was in so much pain. I couldn't even walk and I wasn't brought to a hospital. Nothing. My mother gave me a concoction of Valium T3s and she gave me a sherry. Bear in mind, I was 15 years old and just told me to lay down and there was never any follow up for that. Then the the following month, I got such bad food poisoning. I couldn't keep down water. I was so sick. And my mother was so bored. I wasn't there to take care of her. You know, I was sick. And she walked into my room once after days and days of me, like not even really even being able to walk. And she walked into the room and I was so excited that maybe she'd try and take care of me or say something nice. And she said, I am so bored. And then she walked out of the room. So I started to be like, wow, this is how my family treats me there's this other way that my school treats me. And, you know, I couldn't reconcile those experiences. Like, what did it all mean? Um, You know, it, and I still had such a strong connection to my mom, but I really liked how I was treated at school and that my feelings mattered. I remember the first time someone asked me my opinion about something, an adult saying like, What do you think? And I was like, oh, I don't know what. And she's like, no, what you what you think is valuable. I'm interested in what you think. That had never happened in my life. Right. So um, my sister asks me all the time, like, how did you know that you needed therapy? Because, you know, they tried to approach my sister a little bit about getting help. And she was absolutely a no for that. I knew just based I guess I had more personal relationships with friends. And I just knew that what was happening wasn't normal. And I knew I was in pain and I knew I wanted to feel better.
1: So I interrupted you there and I guess continue on where we were in the linear part of the story.
0: I think where we're at is we're in the middle of boarding school. We're in the middle of, of my mom for the first time expressing dissatisfaction with my stepfather but we, and we need to defend her and we need to uh, empathize with her, but we cannot double down and tell her, yeah, we relate because he doesn't treat us well either. That was not okay. And, and he was in no way abusive towards her or anything. She just didn't, things had shifted a little. Maybe the honeymoon period was over. Maybe he was giving her less narcissistic supply. Um, I think she had hoped he would go further in his career and give her more status, which he hadn't in a while. Um, so I'm going back and forth with my sister from boarding school to, to where they're living and every visit is killing us. Every visit is the worst visit ever. Every visit is, um, them fighting my stepfather, refusing to acknowledge us or speak to us. He's angry because now the bond is really broken between us. Like at that point, I maybe would have run away if he tried to touch me sexually or kiss me on the mouth. And I think he knew that and he backed off. I, no one was the golden child. Suddenly, my sister and I were the problem. Whenever they fought, they blamed us. Um, and that was that was new. And then we had to contemplate this new thing of, okay, now we all need to go back together and live together. I need to leave boarding school. We now need to live with this tyrant and this narcissist. Um, and, like, how are we going to do it? And it was terrifying. And throughout this time, I was also having this relationship at school that was, you know, giving me life and giving me anxiety and, and crossing my boundaries. And, you know, I still didn't know what consent was. And I mean, this took me years and years and years to figure out, but I was, you know, I was open to abuse at school and at home by, by people who were taking advantage of me essentially. Um, and that was sort of the blueprint for a lot of my early romantic relationships, uh, was that I was a sweet, good girl. I let, Whoever it was, do whatever they wanted to me. And I would just feel sad when they no longer wanted to. I did not know what love was. I did not know what consent was. I didn't know it was okay to like to be touched or that it was okay to say, that's all I want. I don't want to go further. Everything with me does come down to um, my the lack of autonomy that I was taught. So we live together as a family. Again, by now I'm 16. And my, my parents are just disgusted with the thought that they have these two teenagers, that we have feelings, that we have friends now. Um, they, they talk so much about, like, the dangers of replacing family with peer groups. My, and they never had friends. And I only realized that when I was this age, when I was 16, 17. Wow, my parents have no friends. So I understand why they don't understand why I would want friends. Um, and my sister was sort of arrested developmentally. She didn't go out as much as I did. She almost had no friends. Um, and, you know, I was really, I was out there. I was babysitting. I was seeing friends. I had a, a girlfriend at the time. I was really hiding my, what I thought was my sexuality at the time. Because at the time I thought that perhaps um, I was gay. Uh, just because I, I didn't know anything about myself. So it could have it been that I was gay. Who knows, right? Um, and... Yeah, I there was then the the privacy issues started. That's all of a sudden we weren't being as forthcoming with our parents. So they were going through our garbages. They were going through our drawers. They were reading love letters that had been written to me. So all of a sudden there was so much shame and embarrassment because everything that I thought was private never ever was. And you know, I I don't know if anyone that's listening to this could relate to people reading your private letters that someone has written to you. It is so for me. It was just so humiliating and embarrassing, and um, I just felt uncovered. Uh, I felt like there. I felt like my stepfather was omnipotent because he always knew what was going on. And while I'm going through all this, I'm still taking care of my mother. I'm now counseling her twenty four seven. I am still making her meals. I I she needed me to make her this special pudding all the time for her stomach. This is, you know, a time I'm still running all of her baths. I'm making her tea all the time and now I'm going to doctors and I'm telling them that I have certain ailments so that she can have my prescriptions. So this is around an age where I'm starting to realize, okay, my mom, you know, she needs medication. I didn't see it as um, illegal. I didn't see it as a problem. I saw it as, well. the healthcare system isn't giving my mom all the meds that she wants, so I need to go in and ask for certain painkillers and things, and then give them to her. That's another layer, another way of taking care of my mom, who I love, right? And I just thought, if I can make my mom love me, if I could have a good relationship with her, everything would be okay. And when I first started, I mean, in the Middle East, I definitely saw her mixing alcohol and Uh, barbiturates or alcohol and morphine. And I just thought, well, my mom's in so much pain, like she just needs this, right? And um, I thought it was, I didn't think it was normal because I knew to keep it a secret, but I didn't think it was too problematic. It was only in my 20s that I started to realize like, okay, this is super weird. It took me like entering the world of mental health and substance use as as a worker to recognize that, wow, that is drug-seeking behavior and I was enabling it um, as a, as a minor, right? So really sad. So, um, then my sister and I, we hit an age where we've never been allowed to speak to a boy. We have never been allowed to go to a dance. We have never been allowed to go anywhere where there are young men. And all of a sudden the narrative just shifted. And all of a sudden our parents were going like, what's wrong with you? Like, why don't you have boyfriends? You know, you don't go and do things with your friends. You, 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 you don't attract male attention. Like, how are you going to get married? And we were just like, what are you talking about? Like, we're not even allowed to go anywhere with what, but something happened in their right. brains by the time I was 17, my sister was 18. All of a sudden, like, they, they still wanted us to be chaste. They still wanted us to fear God and be Catholic. But like, where are the men? And the reality is my sister was like, she was very um, socially cut off. You know, she didn't have even female friends, let alone boyfriends. And I was really afraid of men because of my stepfather. I was really afraid of men. Um, so I was scared to pursue dating with men, too. And when I did, it wasn't that great. I would always dated men way older than me um, that also didn't care about my boundaries. You know, it was it was kind of like reliving the trauma with my stepfather over and over again. And I'm not going to say they were all bad people. Some of them were really kind to me. Um, But I didn't have the words to voice what I wanted or didn't want. And that created a gray area in a lot of my romantic relationships. So um, now I'm at an age where I can leave home, but I can't leave home because I love my mother. And my mother relies on me for everything. At this point, her relationship with my stepfather is really falling apart. Um, She hates him. She's talking about him the way she used to talk about my sister. She's still not a fan of my sister's. Um, but things things are really falling apart. But then one day I just decided I needed a clean break. There was no way I was going to be able to get away from my mom a little bit. So I had to get away a lot. So I moved to a different country for a year and a half. And as soon as I landed in this other country, I called my mom to tell her that I was okay. And she let me know that she was really angry at me and that I was basically no longer her daughter. And I didn't know how to deal with that other than to move on. I, I just I my mom had never been that mad at me and I had abandoned her. That's that's how she felt. And also she was glad that I was gone. It was it was this she wanted me to leave, but she didn't want me to leave the way I left or as far as I left. And all of a sudden, I didn't know how to be around my mom while she was super mad at me. So I just chose to live without her. So for a while I did. And that's when I started to have some healthy relationships. It's when I stopped um saying to people oh I can't do this I have to go home and take care of my mom my poor mom she's so sad and she's so depressed and she needs me and you know I can't go to this event because what about my mother and you know and people go like that's not normal your mom needs friends your mom needs a counselor and I'd be like you don't understand like my mom is so special you don't understand so all of a sudden I'm learning some autonomy I'm having some really exciting romantic relationships I'm I don't know how but Someone actually, like, taught me what consent was um, through a romantic relationship, and I started to do some healing, and um, when I came back to the country, my mom was, was very mad at me, and I was peripheral. I wasn't welcome in the house anymore. Um, my stepfather apparently, uh, again, th- there was just this emotional, incestuous stuff that was going on whereby when I fell in love with someone, my stepfather would tell my mom, Well, Nina dumped me for this other person. So he was mad at me. I was no longer, you know, full of gratitude for everything he provided me. And I had abandoned my mother. So now I'm the bad daughter. I'm on the outside. Um, My sister at this time is also the bad daughter. So there's no favorite. There's no golden child. There's no scapegoat. So I guess they had to lean on each other for a while. And then one day I got a call from someone and they said, look, um, you won't believe this. I don't believe it either. But your stepfather has left your mother after 26 years. So um, in this time that they had separated, I had met my husband. My husband is the first man, speaking of consent, that, I didn't, that, that didn't initiate sex with me. Um, he waited for me to initiate it with him. Everything was very much on my terms. And um, it was very hard for me to have a normal, balanced, healthy relationship. I expected that when I found a partner, he would love me in the way that my stepfather had loved my mother, right? Lots of adulation, lots of praise, and that he would lie for me in public. I came from a family where you lie in public. So the first time I ever went out with my husband, he was still my boyfriend, and someone asked, like, how's your ulcer, Nina? And I said, oh, it's getting way better, and I'm not drinking Coca-Cola anymore. And he's like, that's not true at all. Like, you're still really sick. You're drinking the Coca-Cola all the time. You're still eating the foods the doctor told you not to. And I was so humiliated. Got in the car, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, And he was like, I'm sorry, I don't know where you're from, but I'm not a liar, and you're not a liar, and I'm never going to lie for you. And he said it in a way, like, he wasn't judging me and calling me a liar, but he was definitely setting a boundary that... That's not the relationship we're going to have. We're going to have an honest relationship. And um, the, a fight that we had over the first couple of years was, you don't love me enough. You don't appreciate me enough. I was really looking for the love that I perceived my mother got from my stepfather. I really was. And um, it was just crazy. Like, and my husband and I are the same age. We're equals. I'd never been in a relationship with an equal before, with a man. Um, we've had to figure things out ourselves. We've built this amazing marriage that I am so proud of. Um, but it took a lot because I I was so messed up. Like, I was just so messed up from from the fakery and the fronting and the lies that had been my whole life. Right? So um, I should go back to and say that when I was 18, 19, my mother, out of nowhere, approached me one night and said, You're 18 now you have to connect with your father. I said, the father who you say has abandoned me and doesn't love me and treated you like garbage. Well, I mean, then all of a sudden her story changes. That's what your stepfather wanted me to believe because he wanted me so much and he wanted you as daughter so much. But your father's a good man. He's a good man and you've got to contact him so he can bring the life. So I did, I found him. Um, It took a little bit of doing, but I found him. And I started to have a very warm relationship with my father.
1: Uh, Can I put a pin in it right there? Because this is really interesting. Are you doing your mom's bidding for her? You don't know it?
0: You've got it. I didn't know till years later.
1: So she wants you to get back into contact with him. Not for you but she's the one that always desired it. You're just the uh, vehicle to um, drive there and get the door open to the house and she'll waltz in right after.
0: Absolutely. 100%. So it's, it's interesting to me that my mom waited till I was 18. Why did she wait till I was 18? Well, she wanted to guarantee that she could say to the husband that she... Now, my stepfather, oh, Nina just wanted to contact her her father and she's 18 and I have no control over that. She needed plausible deniability because what if my step, my, what if my father didn't want her back and she was still stuck with my stepfather? It, she couldn't be to blame for any of this, right? So she tells me, you know, you need to get in contact. With your father now, as soon as I get in contact with my father, I will say my father said the most beautiful thing to me when I did phone him. It was really scary. I was like, "You won't believe this, but this is your your daughter Nina calling you." And he said, "Oh my God! Like I think about you all the time." And that was like a validation I really needed because I'd always been told what a cold bastard my father was. He didn't love me. He didn't love my sister. He didn't love my mother. And um, so I started having a relationship with my father first via. Phone, email, then visit. And my mother was very, just very turned on by it all, wanted all the information, wanted to know who he was dating, wanted to know how he lived, what his style was, what kind of music he listened to. Like, she was like almost fangirling out. And it was very obvious to me, okay, this woman has never gotten over him. I'd kind of always known that anyway, uh, but I never could have imagined what was going to come years later. That. So when I met my father, he gave me a lot of empathy about the fact that I had been raised by my mother, that I had been kidnapped by my mother, I had been lied to, that, you know, she had let my stepfather abuse us, uh, that, you know, she's so narcissistic, like, he really kind of got it. And I was so grateful for that support. And that's why I was so shocked when years later... I got a call from someone and they said we don't believe this either but my you know your stepfather has left your mother after 26 years and um she's losing her mind she can't do anything by herself she can't do recycling she can't do garbage she can't make a sandwich she can't drive herself to work she can't do anything um she's so codependent with him like you you've got to go help your mom and I couldn't I was married I was a full-time worker I was in full-time therapy at the time trying to unpack my childhood and I just knew this is not a good decision to go back into my mom's life and so I had to set some boundaries I went and visited my mom and I'd never seen her more disheveled fused. the house was a disaster the dog didn't have food or water it was a shit show like it was insane and uh, I kind of let my mom know like I can't be here for this I have a marriage I have a career I have Commitments and honestly, like I'm still healing from all the things you're saying never happened. And now all of a sudden she was willing to admit that some of the things that I had said that she'd perceived as false memories or categorized as false memories did happen. And all of a sudden now my stepfather was the scapegoat for everything that had ever gone wrong in, in my life, in my sister's life, and in her life. So my this is my my sister's moment. She'd never been the favorite. She'd never been called empathetic, and all of a sudden, my mom manipulated my sister to quit her career, move into the house with her, and take full-time care of her. This included everything that you could possibly imagine, going to legal appointments with her, going to hair appointments with her, going, doing her recycling, her garbage, walking her dogs, everything. There was nothing my sister, and, and she just threw herself into it, and she was getting a lot of perceived love from my mother for that for the first time in her life in her 30s right so then something really interesting happens my father expresses an interest for the first time in my entire life of seeing us all as a family together and I thought oh that sounds nice like you know maybe that's what we need maybe you know we can heal some wounds and we can We can get together as a family and we can, uh, we can figure this out. Well, I was, I was wrong. The minute my parents saw each other again, they were back together. So in spite of everything my father had said to me about the fact that, you know, my mom was a terrible person, that she kidnapped us, she'd stolen my childhood away from him. As soon as he saw her again, he was dialed back in and I couldn't say one thing about my mom anymore. My sister couldn't say anything like we were just um, all of a sudden he was buying into her narrative. And I, like I essentially lost my father again to my mother again. And they remarried a few years ago. And I, you know, it, it was so traumatic because they couldn't understand why my sister and I weren't happy for them. And by the way, it bears mentioning That the minute my father came to town and re-met my mom, my sister was thrown out of the house, literally. She no longer needed the care that my sister was providing because now she had my father back. And my sister was, like, basically told to leave. And um, all of a sudden, all the things that I'd heard when I was a very young child about my sister, just how uncaring she is and how... She's awkward and strange and and weird, and like nobody can love her, and all those things. All of that came back. And um, so, you know, she had a couple years there where, to her own detriment, she got a lot of love from my mom, and then it was just over. So now we are both discarded.
1: So once this happens, obviously that's extremely uh, re traumatizing um, for you. For your sister, this is like that's devastating, in my opinion. Um, to finally get the love that you always wanted and you conformed and you were getting it after that many years, and then to just be tossed away again by your mom. I mean, did your sister crash really hard after that? Was she able to bounce back?
0: No, she, she crashed so she crashed so hard. Um, so what I had years and years and years to decompress about and do counseling about like because it happened over my whole childhood, like she all of a sudden felt what she thought love felt like, which is basically being taken advantage of, but given a lot of attention and care for a little while um, in return for the, everything she was providing my mom. And then that was taken away. And she saw it happen in an afternoon. It was literally like, you know, and it happened for both my sister and me in some ways. Like I had dinner with my parents the first night that he was in town and they ignored me the whole night. It was like I was intruding on their date. And now all of a sudden, and I had a home to go to. I I had a home that I created with my husband. My sister was living in a house with my, my mom. She had given up her home. She'd given up her relationship. She'd given up her career path, which like was a huge career path. She quit everything to just be my mom's caregiver. And now she was out. And around around this time I had an operation and I was in hospital and my sister had sent me some flowers and we hadn't really talked in a while and I phoned her. And you know, you know when you go under the knife, you 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 just think like thought if I die like what what's my number one regret? And my number one regret going into the operation was I feel so bad about how I've treated my sister, how I've thought about my sister, the things I've let my parents say about my sister. And I just, you know, if I get through this, you know, I I have to talk to my sister. So I, I sat in my hospital bed and she called me and I thanked her for the flowers. And I was like, I just want you to know that you are a good person. And I'm sorry that I made fun of you when you stuttered. I'm sorry. I thought you were awkward. I'm sorry like, I'm sorry for everything. And she was like, wow, no one has ever told me that I'm a good person in our family. Like, I can't believe you think that about me. And, you know, I've always thought I was so weird and deficient. And you were just always so beautiful and bubbly. And I wished I could have been like you. And I'm like, no, who you are is valuable. Like, we weren't loved for the right reasons. We weren't loved at all. Sometimes it's not your fault. And that was the beginning of my sister admitting to herself that, okay, I need some counseling what I've survived is not normal. And it's been a harder path for her because I got help sooner than she did. So she still has a lot of anger and rage about how she was treated and gaslit and um, and used, right? Because now, you know, I'm in this new phase with my, with my mother where now she's reliving the trauma of my father not loving her enough, even now. So she got him back and she's, was so happy with that for a while. But now they have all the same problems they did prior to her kidnapping us, which is like, you just don't love me enough. And so she pulls us into her fights. And the fights are vicious. I mean, the fights are dangerous. The fights get the cops called. I mean, there is there is trauma and, and abuse happening within that marriage. That I mean, I didn't even witness stuff like that growing up. It's really bad.
1: So with your sister you were at a, in a war together you were soldiers but sometimes you were pitted against each other a lot of the times you were and there's trauma everywhere so there's the aspect of wanting to heal the relationship but there's also the aspect of constantly re-traumatizing each other exactly and, and you're at a point where um you're still, I mean, you're in your 40s. I don't know exactly what year this started to, the reconciling and the therapy happened, at least for your sister. Um, but as you get older, the harder it is to, for every year you live, in my opinion, you know, it takes a little bit longer to repair those things. If you're trying to do this at the age of 60, uh, you know, it's not easy. But if you're in your 30s, in maybe your early forties you, you you got a chance um to really by the end of the time you're still alive that you're able to have a good life or at least not have the trauma run your life uh, depending on the severity of things and your sister and yourself went through very severe trauma um, but it also when you're gone through that trauma um and reconciling being around someone who was there during those moments isn't always going to be comfortable and it's not always healthy. Um because it's just it's there. You know, it's not that you were trying to avoid it, but um it's tough to always be around it, if that makes sense. Have that stimulus uh there. Um, so within your journey, it's a little bit easier cause you started earlier. Uh, but with your sister, does she find it difficult, um, to go through this process and reconcile? I know this has been a long winded tangent, but reconcile with you and, um, need her distance from you at the same time.
0: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of things to address there. So the first is that uh, no one in the world ever is ever going to understand what we went through, my sister and me, except my sister and me, right? So in that way we're allies and we we are able to support each other, but at the same time we are, we were a witness to things that are so awful and that we still have so much shame and embarrassment over that we do we can retrigger ourselves, we can re-traumatize each other. And um, unfortunately, that really dictates how much time we're able to spend together uh, during visits or or just even short visits. So my sister and I realized last December that we love each other more than life. Like after my partner, um, she is the most important person in the world to me. And we cannot stay at each other's houses. We just re-trigger each other. We were on such edge Um, I'm annoyed by her behavior because I feel like, well, that's behavior that's bad. Like you're going to get in trouble for that. Not recognizing that there's no one here to get her in trouble. There's, there's no parental figures She starts to kind of treat my husband and me as if we are parental figures. Like if my husband and I have like one cross word between us, like not, no, no scene, we don't have scenes, but if I'm just a little bit annoyed with my husband, my sister just automatically assumes there's going to be a huge family fight and she's so traumatized. That we just, we straight up can't really spend time together. We try to limit how much we talk about our childhoods. And that's hard because we're the only ones who understand. And we, sometimes we just want to run memories by each other. Like, did this happen? Like, do you remember how this felt? And we can do that for a while. But there are times both of us have to be like, you know what? I can't talk about this anymore right now. It is too traumatizing. I, yeah, I started therapy younger. My outcome so far has been better. My sister's had like one, you know, one longer term relationship. Um, She yearns to have a partnership, uh, but I think trust is very hard for her. Uh, Being loved for who she is is very hard for her. Um, Acceptance is really hard for her to feel that she deserves. And she's still, you know, her response, my response was more depression. My sister's response to the trauma was more anger. And anger can be an off-putting emotion to a lot of people. So, you know, we come across really differently, and her anger is 100% justified, by the way, and she's never blown up at someone who doesn't deserve it, but, you know, it's a it's a very different response, and it's a little bit less socially acceptable. Um, in terms of friendships, like, I certainly have more friends. I certainly, I work in a field that I really love. Um, I, I have done uh, better. I mean, my marriage is a miracle. I can't believe that I am a part of something so healthy and and transformative and beautiful, and it has not been perfect. And I was a very challenging partner um, because of what my expectations were um, and and how depressed I've been. So around the time that my parents got back together and remarried, I had a car accident, and that really re-triggered a lot of trauma from my childhood, which I didn't know would happen. And I, I had to, I guess that's, you know, when you asked earlier about, like, when did you have your crash? I would say it was when I had the car crash. And my parents were getting back together, and I was watching my mother like split against us with my father. Now, um, like the splitting took on an even new dimension. Like I always knew she was saying bad things about me to my sister, and vice versa, and bad things about my stepfather to me, and vice versa. But now she was smearing me to my own father, who I had a relationship with, whom I loved. Right. So that that was a really big crash, and and my husband really stood by me. Um, you know. I didn't work for quite a while. I was going to counseling all the time. I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectal behavior therapy. I was like on a journey and a lot of people would have been really bored or disinterested or annoyed by that or just fed up. Like, look, you've had your time to deal with your childhood, but he just kind of gets it and he always has. And um, he grew up so differently than I did and he still has so much empathy for what I may have gone through. And I think what he understands is that he will never understand. And he's okay with that. He's open to me explaining why I have certain responses to things, you know, or, or you know, why he's, he's just like straight up accepted that we can't kiss, unfortunately, that that's not a way that we can show affection for each other. Um, and I know that when I'm, you know, being irrational, he, it's not that he excuses it, but he understands why it's happening. And he's open to talking about it later. And he never you know, calls me crazy or psycho or, and honestly, he's, he's done really good at not demonizing my parents too. Um, A lot of people, they think that I'm going to feel better if they call my mom a bitch or that, and that really doesn't make me feel better. I actually feel really sorry for my mother. I I can't imagine what it must be like for her to live, um, how isolated she must feel. She's never had a friend. She's never trusted anyone. Every relationship she has is based on manipulation Like, I really would not wish that on anybody. And it really sucks that we were so abused as a result of it. But I, again, I, I, just because I don't want my mom in my life, doesn't mean that I don't understand and have empathy for her.
1: So I guess before we go, uh, I guess let us know what your relationship right now is uh, with your mom, what it's like. Uh, Do you have contact with her or is it no contact?
0: So we didn't have contact for three years. Um, and it bears mentioning that people, who, you know, with narcissism, uh, character traits, and with borderline character traits, and all the other, you know, um, pathologies she probably has, it gets a lot worse with age in a lot of ways. So my mom is is kind of moving towards psychosis in her late 60s. And the last time she called me, she, had, she was in a fight with my father. She had left him and was in a hotel room in the States somewhere. And um, she told me that he has been cheating on her, which I find very unlikely because he's 84 years old. And he's also just straight up not a cheater. So, again, my mom is constantly leaving him and trying to recreate him coming to get her, like kind of like she, did when she kidnapped us. And she told me all these terrible delusions that she has about my father and what a terrible person he is. And I, again, I'm not giving her that supply. I was just like, wow, it sounds like you're really struggling with your mental health. And um, she she really let me know that she was done with me, um, which she always is. If I displease her even a little bit, she's done with me. And then she, the next day, she and my father called me jointly. So obviously, my rejection of her pushed her back to him. And they told me, I need to stop worrying about their marriage, <laughs> even though she had called me. Um, and they're fine. And I was like, I'm sure you are, I'm sure you're working it out. And I was a little bit tempted, um, at that, like I sent her some pictures of myself, my husband and my dogs and my home. And she replied to the emails, um, on top of those pictures, but never commented on any of them. Like I, she doesn't know anything about my life anymore and she's not interested. She's really fully spiraled out and living her own existence. So right now I'm in a place of recognizing I will likely never see my father again. Um, she's very threatened by the relationship that we had. So she's really smeared myself and my sister to him. So, I, you know, he's 84. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever see him again. Um, I don't think I'll ever see my mom again. I, I think I'll hear from her again. I do go through stages where if she reaches out to me, I'll block her for a few months just because I'm so traumatized by her contact. Like my stomach is in ribbons and I'm getting headaches and I'm having panic attacks. So I take a break, but ultimately I do kind of want to know what's going on with her. And also it helps my sister to kind of know what's going on with her because they haven't spoken in five years. And I was able to call my sister and kind of say, look, trigger warning. Um, the parents did reach out and this is what happened and she was just so grateful. She didn't have to deal with it. Um, But also, you know, we do kind of want to know what's going on. Like if only to know if our father is still alive, we do kind of like to share the information. So at this point, I mean, I'm open to a little bit of contact with my mom. I wish she had some self-awareness. I wish she understood that she's mentally ill and would seek some treatment for that. But that's not going to happen. Um, I think one day I'll just get news that my father's passed away. And, you know, that it, it's an unfinished story. And that's how a lot of family relationships are. It's not a story where I can tell you, and then I divorced my mother and it was over. It, it's ongoing. I don't know what the end is. I know that my responses are better and different every time she reaches out. Um, and I know that I'm not crazy. I know that, I mean... The the abuse that we've talked about today it's five percent. I mean the amount of things that happened that sh- that shouldn't have happened. I mean it's unbelievable what I've survived, uh, what my sister has survived. That my sister and I are even able to have a relationship after everything that happened. Um, so yeah, there there is no there's no real ending yet. Um, I, I guess the it's really just about focusing on on my wellness. I think regardless of whether my mom is in or out of my in and out of my life.
1: And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening, what would it be?
0: Um, if it feels wrong, it probably is wrong. Okay. If you have a, a childhood memory and you're like, I'm crazy though, my parents were fine. Like, why do I think that was inappropriate? If it feels inappropriate, it wasn't appropriate. If you were someone that was raised to be pleasing and loving and sweet and kind and have no concept of self and have no concept of consent, it is not too late. I assure you, it is not too late at any age. Really, there is maybe you'll get better five percent, ten percent, fifty percent. Who knows? But there is there are good moments to be had. There's self actualization to find. Um, the you know. No one will, will it's, it's hard. No one will ever really understand what you went through and why you are the way you are. But self-forgiveness, I mean, it's crazy that victims and survivors have to forgive themselves. But I, I have had to. And it's, it's not just a, a phrase. It's literally, I've had to tell myself, like, I did the best I could to survive. Um, that came out as abuse towards my sister. Uh, that's really upsetting. I'm going to find ways to make that up to my sister as you know, and that most of that just through conversation um, and just letting her know that I, I'm sad for how it was for her. And she's the first to assure me, you were a child. You're my younger sister. Like, it's not your fault. I would say therapy is so important. I can't stress enough that unpacking with um, someone who is unbiased is is very important. And, um, yeah, and also just to not be too hurt when you're speaking to folks who can't relate, that they're not ever going to be able to relate. Like, there are just things, like, I'm almost grateful people can't relate. It means they didn't go through what I went through. Um, It's, you know, it's not a bad thing. It just hurts in that moment. Um, And you're going to get advice. You're going to get advice for the rest of your life when you have a narcissistic parent of, hey, like, but, you know, your mother needs you or your mother loves you. Or you've got to be in contact with her. And they're making judgments about me that I'm a bad daughter because I'm not putting up with all this abuse. And I once asked a therapist, like, what would I have to say for those people to say, you know what, you're fine. You don't need contact with your mom. And my therapist said nothing. Some people believe that in spite of what happens in families, you need to be a good daughter, a good son forever. And um, I'm going to say that it looks different for every single person and to not judge what you need to do to survive well. And it's not just about survival. That's the last point I'll, I'll make is it's about thriving. If you're just surviving a relationship, not a great, uh, that's, it's not wonderful. You you want to thrive. You want to learn. You want to do well. You want to feel good. You don't just want to get through it. And if I was having contact with my mom every day, it would be, it would be survival or, or maybe not, but, it wouldn't be thriving. It wouldn't be learning new healthy patterns, um, enjoying moments of my life, uh, being proud of myself and, and what I've built. So, yeah, look for more than survival. You deserve more than survival. You deserve to be happy.
1: Well, Nina, I want to thank you for being on the show today and sharing your story. Um, I had right in front of me, I, I was on my desk. I have a messy desk here. And uh, my friend uh, makes these chocolate chip cookies that have fortunes inside of them. And some of the fortunes aren't technically fortunes, but they're affirmations or, or words that you need to hear. So I'm going to flash this up for you. If you can read it. Can you read that?
0: It says, you're an incredible being just the way you are.
1: And... Um, you are, um, you went through a lot. Your sister went through a lot and I want your sister to know that too, that she's an incredible person, just the way she is. Um, Thank you for
0: including her in that. Um, and I, you know, she really wants to, to hear this one day and, um, you know, it's, it's a form of validation for her too. And I really appreciate how sensitive you were to her part in this story
1: I'm sensitive to your part of the story, but I am here. Um, it brings me to tears. Um, her part as well. You know, your story is, is unique um, in, in many ways. Um, and it's very common for other people in, 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 in different ways, as far as the feelings and, uh, the control and, uh, all of that. And you've done a work, um, you're still doing work. Um, and this is just the rest of your life. I mean, your rest of your life is, is processing this and, um, and hopefully not being, uh, have the trauma, the trauma triggers, you know, hit you as much as they are and they lessen, uh, every day, but, um, really just thank you for, for sharing your story. Um, I got emotional. <laughs> oh, I, I, and
0: that, It's so touching. And, and that's the other thing really quickly is that we are going to be re-triggered and that that's going to happen. But the, the bounce back rate changes as you get help, as you know yourself better, as you know, your responses better. It's not always going to hurt the way it used to. And, and that's, it's really important for people to know that. Because, I mean, the way I feel the first couple of minutes when my mom triggers me now, when she calls me after three years, I, I'm like, great, now this is my life again. But it isn't, because with the skills that I've been taught and my self-awareness and my my uh, support system, it doesn't have to be like that, you know? So it, we're, we're all so capable of, of healing. It's, it's incredible, you know? It, and, again, it doesn't have to be 100%, and 100% isn't even the goal. So, Um, Thank you so much for just for having the desire to hear people out. It's so powerful.
1: I'm not good at taking compliments, so I'll just smile. (laughs) And that's,
0: that's absolutely fine. That's a good acknowledgement of what I said. And uh, a lot of people, you know, they, they, um, they're interested in the story, but they're kind of weaving in and out all the time. And I love that you, you really, um, you want to hear it from start to finish and you, you want to really understand that, uh, I that is really unique. I love that. I love this community and it's taught me so much. And when I got re-traumatized recently, that's how I found your community, this community. And um, I was like, oh, there's people just like me who get it, you know, because it's hard to open up about these things with, with you know, a, a bunch of people in your in your own sphere. It's amazing to have connections with people where that's what you can have in common and you know and then you just kind of go back into into your life i love that so again thank you
1: well thank you and if you want to be a guest on our show like nina was today please do go to our website at narcissistapocalypse.com top of the page there's a button that says guest form when you click on that button it takes you to our guest form page please read all the instructions And uh, fill out our guest form, press the submit button, or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. So if you need support, click on the support group button. When you click on that button, it takes you to our support group. And there you'll find our forum boards. And every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and every Saturday night, we have Zoom meetings. We have support group meetings. And we have on there as well episodes that never made it to air. And we have ad-free episodes as well if you're looking for that. And uh, also, if you just want to support our show, please do join our support group because it helps us out a lot. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. Domestic Shelters has, extensive library, has an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And they can connect you with local resources like Shelters to help you heal and move forward. So please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And now that is it for today's uh, story. So from myself and Nina, we hope you have a good night.